How many of you have ever taken a test? Anyone, everyone here in the room, right? Any of us who've done any kind of schooling or training have, have had tests, right? To see if you learned what the teacher taught you or you gained the skills that you needed. Uh, we, we know about tests in academia and in our educational experience. We also many times have tests in our jobs. So a lot of you are in the Army or know people in the Army. Uh, a lot of us had to take the ASVAB, right, a test to, uh, to see what kind of jobs and skills we were qualified for in the Army or even if we could join the Army at all. And then there's additional schools that you can go to. Some of us have been to Air Assault School over here at Fort Campbell. Um, and so, you know, there's certain things where you're evaluated on. Can you do this physically? Can you identify these deficiencies and you're tested in that way? Or if you've been to Ranger School or you've uh, prepared for an NCO board or an N you've gone to an NCO academy. Other professions have tests too. So before you can be a practicing attorney, you have to pass the bar exam in your state, right, to be a licensed attorney. Or some of you are teachers and in the public school system, you gotta take the praxis test to, to show you know some basic academics or a, a test for your particular subject that you teach. And you gotta be certified in order to teach. Some of you have gotten CDLs, commercial driver's licenses, so you're equipped and you've demonstrated that you know information about that, that equipment that you're going to be driving and, and operating. You can do it safely. All kinds of tests for, for driving and skills and knowledge. There's another kind of test. There's a personality test. Any of you ever taken a personality test to see if you're like a leader or introvert, extrovert? Well, they have all kinds of uh, personality tests. Some are more you know, trustworthy as others. Maybe some of you have taken some of those online personality tests, like which Star Wars character are you? Ladies, let's be honest. How many of you have taken the which Disney princess test are you? Oh, yeah, we have one, a couple, on, we have a couple honest people here. We didn't have any honest folks in the first service. No one raised their hand on that one. Well, as part of my extensive study and preparation for the sermon today, I decided that I too would take an online personality test. And the one I chose to take was which Muppet character are you test. And you know, I was really hoping that I'd be like, I'd have show signs of leadership and so I'd get Kermit the Frog or, you know, maybe because of my cheesy, corny jokes, my humor, I'd get Fozzie Bear or something or, or even just Gonzo because, yeah, he's weird, but he's kind of cool too, right? No, what I got was, was this character. This is the guy I got. <laughs> any of you guys know, any of you guys know who, what his name is? I didn't know before. Anyone? Sweetums, yes. I didn't know. I did a little research on him. He's uh, this big, helpless, harmless, I should say. He's a big, harmless ogre. So maybe that's why I'm still single. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> this is what my, my personality test told me. You got sweetums. You're rough around the edges and a sucker for lullabies. You enjoy wandering, and your friends may occasionally, accidentally leave you behind. But you usually find a way to get exactly where you need to be. There you go. Personality test. So you have academic tests. You have personality tests. But the, the kind of tests I really want us to think about are scientific tests. So think about labs and Bunsen burners and beakers and flasks and stuff like that. Not beaker the Muppet, beaker the you know, scientific tool. So what do you do with a scientific test, right? You're trying to figure out what something is, what it's made out of. Well, what are you usually trying to test for? Now, I probably should have given a trigger warning. Those of you who had a bad experience in high school chemistry, don't worry, we're not going to talk about valence electrons. We're not going to diagram out chemical reactions. It's just making a simple point with this periodic table of elements. So with scientific tests, you're often testing for the presence of one of these elements. So this little chart here basically is, uh, according to our scientific discovery, what mankind has discovered, everything in the known physical universe can be represented by a combination of these elements here. These are the basic building blocks of all matter in the universe. And so we as human beings 
have come up with different tests to find out the, the presence or absence of this. So, you know, some of you maybe remember from your chemistry labs dipping the little litmus paper into the liquid and seeing what color it turned, right, to see whether it was basic or it was acidic, uh, what, where it was on that scale, to try to figure out what element you were dealing with. Or maybe you looked at something under a microscope or, you know, some of these tests involve uh, mixing chemicals with other chemicals to see how they react, and that's a good way to see what's, what you're dealing with. You're bombarding that substance with energy rays or, or something else to see how it reacts, and that, that will tell you which of these elements here you're dealing with. But all, these are all tests to figure out the presence of the basic building blocks of the material universe, or the elements uh, in the universe. Well, today, we're going to look at three tests for true Christianity. Basically, tests for the three elements of the Christian life. So I think it's helpful to think about the, the, the Christian life, the true Christianity, as having three basic elements. And all of the commentators I looked at say that, hey, there, there's these three big themes in the uh, letter of First John. You have truth, you have light, and you have love. Truth, that's uh, pretty simple. We know what truth is, right? It's not falsehood. Light, that's typically a picture of morality or living in accordance with the truth, your lifestyle, as we'll look at more extensively here. And then love. These th three things need to be part of either your life in order to have assurance that you're a Christian. They need to be in a ministry or in a doctrinal statement. If you don't see these in uh, a ministry or in a church or in someone's life, um, that helps you understand whether you're dealing with true Christian teaching or not, whether you're part of a Christian movement or not. So it's very helpful to, to test for true Christianity. So does your favorite online uh, or TV preacher, are they teaching you true Christianity? You can use this test um, as a way to, to help be an indicator of that. Does Faith Family Church, is what we're, we're proclaiming here in this local church, is it true Christianity? That's, you can use this test even for us, and you can use it for your own life. Have I deceived myself? Am I a, a real Christian? This, is, this, this book is very helpful for that. For a Christian, you can have assurance. You can have discernment about different truth claims. For the non-Christian, you can see what you're dealing with. As you're evaluating the claims of Christianity, you can know you're evaluating genuine Christianity, not one of the many substitutes that are out there. But before we talk about the three different tests for these three different elements, it's going to be helpful to get a little background on the book before we look at it through this lens of three different tests. So we're going to quick do a little background uh, information then. So first of all, for the background, who's the author? Who was this book written by? It was written by the Apostle John, one of the original disciples, one of the closest disciples to Jesus, part of that inner three. He and his brother James, the sons of Zebedee, who had the nickname Sons of Thunder, they knew Jesus very well. Um, he was a close personal friend of Jesus. You might say he was his BFF. If Jesus had a, a best friend in his earthly life, it was likely the Apostle John. In fact, his, the way he describes it, he never names himself in the Gospel of John, but he often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And uh, now some, some scholars dispute that John, the Apostle John wrote this letter, um, but really their, their, um, their, their case is not very convincing. There's good case uh, to be made that John wrote the Gospel of John um, based on all kinds of firsthand evidence. And then the language and the topics are so similar uh, between the Gospel of John, and First, Second, and Third John, the, the, his letters, and even the book of Revelation that was written by John as well. So the, the most important thing to realize about this is that the author is a first-hand eyewitness to Jesus, someone who saw, heard, and even felt Jesus. He touched the Lord Jesus. Someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry and who had first-hand understanding of the truth of Jesus' message. 
That's the author. Well, who's the audience? Who is this book written to? Back specifically, it was written to believers in Asia Minor. So this is basically what the, is the modern-day western coast of Turkey, there on the Aegean Sea. At that time, it was, there was a, a series of Greek co uh, colonies there, and it was under the control of the Roman Empire, uh, there in what is today Turkey. And uh, John was here. Um, he was originally in Jerusalem, and then before the temple, and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. He made his way over here to Asia Minor, and um, he was basically there teaching, uh, likely camped out in the city, major city of Ephesus at the time, um, and just teaching and preaching, much as Paul had done. A lot of these churches were started by Paul, but in this part time in the first century, uh, John was there. Paul had probably either been executed or he was in Rome at the time, um, and so John was there. He was the last surviving apostle. Uh, he was likely an old man when he wrote these books and also when he wrote uh, Revelation. He's kind of the grandfather figure in the faith. And he uses terms of endearment for his audience. He calls them my little children many, many times. And his style is simple. Um, those of you who've had uh, New Testament Greek before, you realize that when you really start translating the Bible, uh, the first time you start doing that, it's in the, the epistle of 1 John. Because John uses simple Greek language. And even in the, in the English translations, you can see very simple statements, yet often very profound meanings from these simple statements. And these are simple words about the basic elements of the Christian life. Well, what was John's purpose in writing this? Um, fortunately, John uh, is a big fan of purpose statements. In all, all of his uh, literature in the New Testament, he gives a purpose statement somewhere. So in, for the Gospel of John, in John 20, verse 31, he says, These are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that, you might have life through his name. That you would believe certain things about Jesus and that that belief would result in eternal life. He has an explicitly evangelistic purpose, making the case for who Jesus is and how that will affect your eternal destiny by believing that. That was his purpose for the Gospel of John. And even in Revelation, Revelation 1.19 says, uh, talks about how we could, that was written so that we'd know what would happen hereafter, what would happen in the future. Well, 1 John also has several purpose statements, at least four. And so real quickly, as part of our background, we're going to go through these four purpose statements to understand why John wrote this book. Now, this is where, this would be really helpful for you to open up your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, however you do it. Um, uh, don't worry, we're not going to do sword drill. We're not going to be flipping all over the entire Bible looking at different passages. But we're just going to look at a series of probably three pages in most Bibles, in the Bibles that you have provided there. It begins on page 707. You want to take either a Bible there in the uh, chair racks, or you have your own, or you want to turn it on, go ahead and turn to 1 John. Basically, if you want to find where that is, go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and flip a few books forward. You'll find it in the books there uh, in the chairs. It's on page 707, sort of like the jetliner, 707, and it's only 707 to 709, just three pages in our uh, chair Bibles. So first of all, the first purpose is to promote joy. John wants to promote joy in our life. We see this on, in chapter 1, verse 4. So if you're not used to looking at a Bible, chapter numbers are the big numbers, verse numbers are the small one. So chapter 1, verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Does it surprise you that joy is part of the Christian life? Maybe you just associate true Christianity with very you know, dour, serious, never have any fun kind of people, straight-laced, you know. Uh, does it surprise you that John wants his audience, he wants us as believers to have joy? 
Do you associate Christianity with joylessness or joyfulness? Well, who's the hour here? Um, there's probably a lot of things that it could be, and probably a lot of things that, that are included in this hour, hour joy. Uh, clearly, it means John himself. John, the apostle, gets joy when, he, when other people, his little children, his um, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, believe the truth and are grounded in the truth. But also, I think he's speaking on behalf of all the other apostles, too. Even though a lot of them had gone to be with the Lord by this time, the apostles received great joy. Apostle Paul and many others, when they knew that their children were walking in truth, to use phrase Peter uses. Um, and so it's likely that. It also in, likely includes God. We know that God and the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner comes to repentance. And also, it, it also clearly includes all of us. It includes the original audience, that they would have complete joy, and us to this day. God wants us to have joy. And we're going to, uh, this is a huge topic. We're going to look at this more next week when we look at the first four chapters of this book. But God wants us to have joy. That's a big purpose for us. He commands us to have joy uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's something deeper than happiness. It doesn't depend on the circumstances of your life. But it's evidence of true uh, Christianity, and it's something that uh, God wants in our life, and that one of the reasons that John wrote this book. So if you want joy in your life, study First John and, and come back for, as we go through this series. Second purpose, to prevent sin. To prevent sin. And we see this on that same page there. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. Well, what is sin? It's one of those words we use a lot in the Christian life, right? Let's, let's define our term. Sin is disobeying God. It's doing what is wrong. Either what we, intent, we intentionally know is wrong or that we find out later we unintentionally did something that was wrong. Either way, it's sin. It's desiring what's wrong. Even the desires of our heart can be sinful. It's not doing what's right. If God has commanded us uh, to do something and we fail to do it, that's also sin. It can be not worshiping God alone or not living in dependence on God. Just basically living our day-to-day -day lives like we've got this covered and we don't need God in our lives. That's also a form of sin. So it has to do with those acts of commission or omission. It also has the idea of missing the mark, of falling short of the target, or of not making the standard. Right? We talk about this a lot in the Army, right? There's a certain standard that you have to reach in order to be a, a go on a particular event or skill set, and you're a no-go if you don't make the standard. Well, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the standard. The, the Bible is clear on that. And John flat out says even in, later in this letter, if anyone says that they haven't sinned, they're a liar. We've all sinned. And sin is our greatest enemy. It's what separates us from a holy God. It's, and it's why we deserve punishment, eternal punishment. And sin is why Jesus allowed himself to be killed on the cross. He died for sin, to save us from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our lives. So there's this great quote um, from one of the, the great Puritan authors of uh, years ago, John Owen. He says, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin is deadly. It's also deceptive. Sin wants to pretend that it's your best friend and can offer you all kinds of great things, but it's a liar. It's only going to give you death. So we need to fight it. Are you, do you want help fighting your sin? You should. Well, this book is for you. So I encourage you to study this book. I encourage you to come back as we continue this series. The third purpose that John has here is to protect from false teaching. Look again on that same page, chapter 2, verse 26. Go down to chap, uh, verse 26 here. I write these things to you 
about those who are trying to deceive you. Those who are trying to deceive you, you call those false teachers, false prophets. And just like the Apostle Paul in all of his writings, he's war- the Apostle Paul was warning frequently the churches that he planted and that he wrote letters to, watch out, you're going to have wolves coming in among you. They're going to look good, they're going to sound good, but they're going to distort the truth. They're going to give you false teaching. They're not going to give you the truth. You need to be prepared for them. And sure enough, they had, they had arisen. Um, and uh, even in Ephesus, the, Paul makes warnings about Ephesus. John is likely writing from Ephesus. Um, false teachers arose, teaching things that were against what God had said. Now, there's some speculation about the specific type of false teachers that John had in mind. Um, likely, it was some form of Gnosticism. It might not have been the full-bodied Gnosticism that would come uh, the hundreds of years after this time in the first century. But likely there was false teaching about uh, na- uh, nature and then Jesus Christ. So the false teaching that Gnostics and people like them would often teach, they'd say that everything physical, the material word, world, our bodies and everything that we see around us is inherently evil. And only it's the only the spiritual world that's, that's holy. And because they had this error, a lot of times they would, they would teach false things about Jesus Christ. They'd either say, oh, Jesus was all spiritual, but he wasn't really a human being. He wasn't fully human. Or they'd go to the other, the other extreme. They'd say, well, Jesus, the person, was a real human being, but he was only uh, influenced by God, and the Spirit of God would come upon him and leave him, and, but he wasn't fully uh, divine the entire time. These are false. If we look throughout the New Testament, you realize these are false teachings, but they were very popular. They were creeping in, this, this idea. And this false teaching had implications in their doctrine, in their teaching, but it also worked itself out in their life. So there's a couple different extremes uh, that could be the result of this false teaching. Some people would go to one extreme and say, hey, well, if the material world's all evil, it doesn't matter what you do in your physical body. So you can do whatever you want in the physical world, um, whether God says it's sinful or not, it doesn't matter because all that matters is the spiritual. And then other people had the other extreme uh, where they'd say, like, hey, because the material world is so sinful, we can't trust it, we shouldn't take any pleasure in this life, so we should be ascetic. We should be like monks and try to deny ourselves as much food and pleasure as we possibly can and that was the path to true spirituality was self, pure self-denial and not enjoying any of the good things that God's given us in this life. So again false teaching leads to false action and this is likely something the specific false teaching that, that John had in mind and he was trying to guard them and he was trying to guard us against false teaching. There's false teaching in that time there's all kinds of false teaching today that we need to be warned about and be uh, protected from. So the fourth purpose is to provide assurance of salvation. This is a great one. Uh, And we see this flip over to page 709. Chapter uh, 5, verse 13. 5, verse 13. This is a great uh, passage if you're, you're struggling with your assurance here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is something that people can find shocking. What? You mean you can know that your sins are forgiven and that you'll go to heaven one day when you die? How, how can you know that? I mean, some people almost recoil with, with horror that you would say something like that. They think, you, how proud can you possibly be? What, you must think you're some great perfect person if you think you, you know you're going to heaven. But those of us who know the scriptures know that you know, spoiler alert here, it's not about what we've done or failed to do or haven't done too many bad things. It's all about what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And if we believe that, we can have assurance that our sins are forgiven. Um, and if you're struggling with that, please talk to me afterwards. 
Uh, you know, there's lots of different religions and there's even Christian traditions that don't teach this. They basically say, hey, you can't know. That's why you got to keep going to church. That's why you got to watch out what you, you do and you want to do all these good works. And, and, and hopefully God will let you into heaven if you do a good enough job. Well, there's no assurance. If your performance has anything to do with your eternal destiny, there, it is impossible for you to have assurance. And John here in this verse and in the writer of Hebrews, all other places in the scripture are saying you can have confidence in your standing with God. So that's one of the, John's key purposes, that you'd have assurance of your salvation. And that ties in neatly with our three tests here. So the, the main way we're going to look at this, this book is through these three tests. You can have three tests for your own life to test whether you truly are a believer, whether your sins have been forgiven. So we'll jump right in here. The first test is the truth test. The test for the element of truth, if you will. It's a doctrinal test. It's a test of teaching or claims about who God is and what he's done for us. And it fits in with the truth theme that goes all throughout this, this uh, epistle. True Christianity involves believing certain things. Maybe you didn't realize that, but, but what you believe is really crucial to whether or not you are a Christian. You might uh, say that truth and believing the truth is an essential element of true Christianity. Don't believe me? We're going to quick go through this uh, book looking through this tr truth theme. Now, stay with me here. We're not going to, again, we're not going to do Bible sword drill. It's just a matter of a few pages here, but I think it's going to be really helpful if you get your eyeballs on these verses as, as we go through them real fast. We're going to trace this theme of truth, and, and we're going to see the truth test as we look through uh, the book of 1 John. First of all, first page there, 707 in the, the Pew Bible. 1 John 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Start at the very beginning, first three verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we also we proclaim also to you. Now we're going to unpack this passage a lot more next week. But clearly, John is sharing truth with us. He's saying, I'm an eyewitness. Now, the word of an eyewitness is a lot more trustworthy, right, than someone with second-hand, third-hand information, right? You've all played the game telephone where a message gets distorted the more people it's gone through. So John is saying, hey, listen, I saw Jesus, I heard him, I felt him, I know what, what Jesus is all about, and I'm sharing this truth about Jesus with you. There's all kinds of things we could unpack here, and we will next week. Jesus' eternality, he's always existed. His preexistence, his full humanity, his, that he is the source of fellowship with one another and with God. And that he is the source of our joy. John is making truth claims based on his eyewitness testimony that he believes is trustworthy. Uh, continuing there in chapter 2, verses 21 through 27. Same page there, a little bit further down. John says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who des denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. So there's a lot here. Uh, 
one of the things we see from this passage is that truth about Jesus is essential for knowing God. You can't know God apart from knowing and believing certain truths about who Jesus is. Look at all the truth language in this passage. He says truth twice there in verse 21. He talks about who is a liar or someone who is denying the truth in verse 22. He uses the phrase what you heard twice in verse 24. That message, John is saying that that message of the truth that you heard from me, abide in that. Don't let anyone deceive you or uh, convince you away from the truth in verse 26. And then uh, the, the last verse there, 27, uh, what is true and is no lie. Truth claims are important to Christianity. And, and as we'll unpack later, Lord willing, the Holy Spirit, that anointing we receive through faith in Christ, is, is important for us to understand the truth. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the truth of God's word, and he reminds us of the truth. Now flip over the page to page 708. 1 John 3.19. So chapter 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Notice how it describes Christians here. Christians are people who are of the truth. Of the truth. They are saturated in the truth. We believe the truth. We are made Christians by believing the truth. And it's something that should characterize our life, believing in the truth. And notice, this is the path to true assurance. If you want to have assurance that you are a Christian, you need to know the truth. You need to know what God has said about how you become a Christian. And then you need to trust in that, rest in that, rely on that. Uh, continue there on page uh, 708. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 4, and the first three verses there. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. There's a lot here. It's not just talking about testing you know, claims from some sort of spirit. It's talking about any kind of claim about God, any kind of spirit of the age, any philosophy. We need to be prepared to test truth claims. And he's saying here, these are ways you can test truth from falsehood, what they say about who Jesus Christ is. These are tests. And you see, again, more truth language, uh, test language going on in this passage. Go ahead and, and can you go up at the top of the page, verse 6 there. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How people respond to the truth reveals whether they are of God, whether they are part of God's family, whether they really know God. And notice the, the spirit of truth, the spirit of error. What a beautiful uh, name for the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. He, he helps us understand the truth and he reminds us of the truth. Versus the spirit of error. There's all kinds of spirit of errors, either in our own sinful hearts or in the philosophies and the pop culture around us. All kinds of false uh, truth claims out there. We need to be guarded against it. Then over on uh, the last page, page 709, 1 John 5.13, we read this earlier. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Notice how believing is so important to being a Christian. Believing what? Believing the truth about Jesus. And that, that idea of name there, that isn't just you believe that the name Jesus exists. Um, in, in, in ancient days, someone's name was not just the, the, what you call them, it was everything about that person, their character, their nature, who they were. So believing in the name of the Son of God means believing in Jesus, who he said he is, and what he has done for us. The whole package. 
And it means relying. This isn't just a mental assent like, yes, I believe the Bible teaches these uh, truths about Jesus Christ, but you're relying on it. You realize that your only hope is trusting on this, depending on this, or as Kyle likes to say, banking on this truth. A few verses down in verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You see the word truth used there several times. God is the source of truth. It is a key aspect of his character. You might call it an attribute of God, that he is honest. Remember Paul says this in his epistle to Timothy. He says, God who cannot lie. You can trust God. He is not going to lie or deceive you. And there's also uh, this idea of the true God as opposed to false gods or any kind of substitute for God. Notice these names for God. Him who is true, the true God. Well, Truth is an important aspect of God's character. He expects that to be reflected in our life. We see that um, if you are going to be a Christian, that you must believe certain things about the truth. What are some of these truths that must be believed? Uh, we see this in this epistle. We see that in John's other writings. We see it throughout the, the Bible. That Jesus is human. That Jesus is God. And the related teaching of the Trinity. That God is one God, but yet eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised one. He fulfills those Old Testament prophecies to be the final solution for sin. We believe that Jesus is our Savior, that he died as a substitute for our sins, and that he rose again. He didn't stay dead. That he lives even today. John constantly uses this language that believing leads to life or having faith. Uh, the way Paul phrases it is we're justified, made righteous by our faith. The way uh, John likes to say it is believing leads to eternal life. Remember John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the, the, the most important truth that we could ever understand, we could ever believe, that we are sinners, we've fallen short of God's perfect standard, but that Jesus is God. He is both God, he is both man, and he lived the sinless life that we should have lived and have failed to, that he died on the cross in our place. He took the punishment that we could never um, bear ourselves for all eternity and make up for our sins. He did that. And that how we benefit from this? We benefit from this by simply repenting of our sins. Not that we become perfect, but that we no longer are holding on to them. We, we're no longer reserving the right to have our sin. We turn from it, and we trust fully in what Jesus has done for us, who he is and what he's done for us. This is the gospel. If you have any confusion about this, would you please talk to me, talk to one of the many members here, uh, talk to Kyle. Uh, we would love nothing more than to talk with you about the gospel, how you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven. The gospel, um, God requires us to, to believe the truth, and the gospel is one of the most important truths we can believe. Truth is essential. It's a basic element of Christianity. And this is one of the reasons that Christianity is often frowned upon in popular culture uh, throughout history and, and especially today, because we actually make claims about absolute truth. There are certain things that you can know are wrong and certain things you can know are true, and that it can often be very unpopular. Uh, people want to have uh, relativism in certain areas of their life when it, they find it convenient, not always in other areas. And this is one of the reasons that we focus so much on teaching in this church. While Kyle puts so much effort into preparing sermons week in and week out, his teaching is important. Knowing the truth is so foundational to the Christian life. Um, it's one of the reasons that the, the Bible calls the church the bulwark of the truth or a fortress that's protecting and ensuring that the truth gets passed on from generation to generation. 
That's why we have a statement of faith here at this church and why we require if you want to become a member of this church, you have to read that statement of faith and say, like, yes, I think this is a, a fairly accurate statement of truth found in the Bible. I agree with that. I believe certain things to be true. That's a basic requirement for being a member of this local church because it's an important requirement to being a, a Christian. Um, and it's one, of the it's one of the main responsibilities of elders. That's one of the reasons Kyle focuses it on it so much. In fact, that's one of the reasons that uh, the office of the deacon was created early on in the New Testament is so that elders could be freed up to the ministry of the word and of prayer. Truth is important. It's a basic element of true Christianity. So there's the truth test, and second of all, there's the light test. The test for the element of light. Well, really, this is a moral test. It's a lifestyle test. Um, how we live our lives and how that belief lives itself out in our life. Uh, light is often used for truth, and so walking in the truth is the phrase that John uses a lot. Walking in the light, excuse me. And so that's living in accordance with the truth. It's obeying the truth that God has given us. And John's not the only one to use this language. Paul, I was just reading uh, in Ephesians 5 the other day. He uses the imagery of light and dark for uh, acts, sinful acts that belong in the dark and, and good deeds that belong in the light. We also see this in pop culture. Any Star Wars fans here? A few of you maybe like Star Wars. Maybe you're a Trekkie. You like live long and prosper. Remember in the Star Wars uh, uh, movies, there's the light side of the Force and there's the dark side of the Force. And while Darth Vader is like the coolest villain ever, uh, we all know that you should want to be on the light side of the Force, right? That's what the good guys do. It's that epic battle of good versus evil. Despite the Zen Buddhism in, in Star Wars, you can't tell a really good story unless you have good guys and bad guys, right? Um, so yeah, we know the light is often used for the good, darkness for the bad. What we can think of as moral purity versus moral impurity, light and darkness. And we need to realize that in our lives, this does not mean absolute sinless perfection. Listen to Paul's struggles with, with sin in Romans 7, if you want an example. Uh, for God, yes, God is shown as perfect, uh, the imagery of him is perfect light. In fact, it's so, such bright light, you can't look at God and live. And why Moses, when he came down from the mountain, his face was glowing with the light of God. People asked him to wear a veil because it was just too bright for him. God has sinless, perfect light. He calls us, once we've been forgiven of our sins, to live in this sinful world to reflect his, his light as much as possible. So in this life, it will always be imperfect. But it's a general pattern. That's why John talks about walking in the light. Because it's your general pattern of your life is to, to seek uh, morality and, and, and the absence of sin. Let's look at this quickly through 1 John. If this isn't quite, won't take quite as long as the truth one. Uh, we're going to fly through. So flip back to page 707 or scroll back up to the, to the beginning of 1 John. We're going to go through this real quick and we're going to look out for this light test, this light theme. We'll start in verse 6. 1 John 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Listen, you say you're walking according to the truth and you have fellowship with God, but yet you're walking in darkness. The pattern of your life is darkness and sin. You're deceiving yourself, friend. Uh, your walk is your manner of living, your lifestyle. And this goes to show you the difference between saying and doing. It's, you can say one thing about yourself, but that doesn't mean that you're living that out, that you're, you're and you know, this, this is where people uh, often see hypocrites in the church, Right? How many times have you been trying to share the gospel with someone or even invite them to church? I'm like, oh, church is full of hypocrites. Well, as one of my pastors used to say, and there's room for one more, brother, you know? Um, yes, we all in some sense fail to live up to what we believe, right? But are you one who's content to completely live a lie? 
either secretly or openly, you say you're a Christian and yet you live in a way that you know does not please God. That's, that's what he's talking about here. Uh, continuing uh, on here in, on that first page, 1 John 2, verses 3 through 4. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Notice this test language, by this you will know. Think you can be a Christian without living like one, without trying to, to follow the commands of God? God says you're a liar, and that you're living a lie. A little bit further down there in verse 29 of chapter 2. Verse 29. If you know that he, speaking of God, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. Notice practices. Um, it's something that you is the general pattern of your life, and it's something that you're working at. You know, if you're practicing something, you're probably not doing it perfectly, but that's your goal, is you're seeking to be um, righteous because God is righteous, and you want to live out the character of God in your own life when you've been forgiven. Flip over the page to page 78, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, hopes in God, purifies himself as he is pure. So everyone who thus hopes in God purifies himself because God is pure. Notice that language, hopes in. Another way you could say this is they're trusting in God or they're believing in God. They have faith. They're trusting in the truth, right? Like we were talking about our truth test. What, are the, what does this person do? Well, they purify themselves. This is a really helpful phrase because it shows it's a process. You, if you're continuing to purify yourself, it's because it's an ongoing process. You're continually needing to do this. And this is a helpful di uh, distinction here that theologians say between justification and sanctification. You're justified by faith, as Paul says. You're declared and made righteous simply by believing and trusting in Jesus. But while we're still in this sinful world, before we, the Lord takes us home and gives us a glorified body, we're still going to struggle with sin. And so we go through the process of sanctification where we're continually trying to resist temptation and grow in grace and, and avoid those things that displease God. That's sanctification, and it's a process of purifying ourselves. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Notice these phrases, makes a practice of sinning, or this one's used twice, keeps on sinning. So while we all are going to struggle with sin, um, what, this, what this is talking about is a pattern of giving in to sin. So if we're truly a believer, we're, gonna, we're often going to fail and we're going to struggle we're gonna, and we're going to need repentance again and to restore that relationship with God that we've hurt by giving in to, to sin. But that doesn't mean we've ever surrendered. Um, you know, so giving it, if the consistent pattern of your life is, hey, I've just come to the grips with the fact that I'm going to do this, continue doing this thing that doesn't please God. I'm just going to act like, oh, hopefully my church attendance or whatever else is going to make up for it. That is not what this is teaching. Um, the pattern of your life should not be to keep on sinning or making a practice of sinning. And finally here on page 709, 1 John 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Again, it's, the pattern of your, it's not the pattern of your life anymore. True faith should and will make a difference in how you live your life. If you really are believing the truth, it's going to reflect in the light of your life, whether you're walking in the light or not. So, I'm, again, this is not sinless perfection. Um, 
John is going to talk about in this book how we need an advocate. We need Jesus Christ to be our defense attorney, basically, for when we continue to slip into sin. He, he pl all he can plead is, I died for this person, and they've accepted that. And that's what gives us the hope to continue the process of sanctification and keep struggling against sin. Again, Paul talks about his struggle with sin in Romans 7. Even in the Old Testament, proverb, there's a proverb um, in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament that says a just man falls seven times and rises up again, right? He gets back up. The Christian life is all about getting back up. Living for God will always be a struggle, but generally speaking, there will be a difference in how we live our life. And this is a big biblical pattern. Faith leads to action. Something that is internal, like believing the truth, will, if it's genuine, work itself out into works. That's what James is saying in his, in his letter when he says, faith without works is dead. He's saying true faith is going to produce good works. And there's a helpful little illustration we have here. This is uh, something I took from the Christianity Explained curriculum. It's a really great six-lesson class if you want to examine the claims of Christianity more. I'd be happy to arrange that for you. We've done it during the 9 o'clock hour here or on post even or uh, wherever uh, is convenient for you. But really simple chart that shows you. So many people, whether it's their religion or their Christian background, teaches them that good works lead to salvation. So what you do or what you don't do is what makes you saved. That's not what the scripture says, either in this book or in the rest of the Bible. The true order is that if you truly are saved, you've experienced forgiveness, that will lead to good works. Salvation will produce good works. And if you don't believe me, uh, look up Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 sometimes. Study that out, especially verse 10, and you see how good works fit in there. You are saved. You accept the free gift of God through faith. And then that's going to lead to good works that were actually preordained before you were born, that you would do those good works. That's a good way to, to look at it. Well, we've looked at the truth test. We've looked at the light test. Finally, we're going to look at the love test. The test for the element of love, the love theme. Really, this could be like a subtest for light because there's so many commands throughout the Bible to love God and to love other people that you could think of it as a subset of that. But uh, John emphasizes it so much in this epistle separately that we're going to deal with it separately here. Um, even in the Old Testament, God commands his people to love the Lord their God with their whole heart, soul, mind, strength, all those words basically conveying every part of you need to love God. And you need to love your neighbor like you naturally love yourself. In the New Testament, Christ basically says, yes, this is a great summary of pretty much all the moral teachings of the Bible, is to love God and to love others. And um, even John in his gospel said, uh, quotes Jesus, teaching his disciples, saying, hey, listen, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you're my followers, if you love one another. So our love for each other here in the local church and for believers around the world can be an evidence of God's existence and of his goodness to those around us. So we'll explore this theme here in, in the letter of 1 John. So again, one more time, go back to the, to the beginning of the, the book, back to page 707 if you're using a pew Bible. Look at chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Hating a fellow believer is incompatible with true Christianity. So you can be deceived. You can say, hey, I'm walking in the light. I'm following the commands of God. The Bible says here, if you have hatred in your heart for a brother or you are hating your brother, you're living a lie. You're deceiving yourselves. Uh, continue on there. 
chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is probably one of the most famous passages in all of this book. Uh, those of you who've memorized it in the King James like I have, remember, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Let's go ahead and look at this, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's so much here. I can't wait to preach this when we can go through this verse by verse. Um, there's enough here, not just for a whole sermon, but for a whole series of sermons, but just a few things here. First of all, it's not talking about creation or people in the world. So when it says don't love the world, it's not saying you shouldn't love other people. It's not saying that you shouldn't love and appreciate God's creation. The Bible talks about how the creation shows God's glory or that you should even be concerned about stewardship of the environment. What it is saying is that you don't love the things that God hates, sin. So this whole world is in rebellion against God. The world system around us is generally in rebellion against God. And God calls us not to love that, not to love sin, not to love the sinful practices going on in the world. We shouldn't love that. And also, we shouldn't love good things that God has given to us in the place of God. We shouldn't love the good gifts of family and, and work and career and pleasure more than we love God or in a way that displeases God. And basically, this is a kind of, the way this is helping us understand the love test is that if you have misplaced love, you are not loving God and you are not loving other Christians, but you are loving what God hates, that's an indicator that you haven't passed the love test here. The, your love says a lot about whether you truly believe, whether you've passed the, the light test and the truth test. I can't wait to unpack that more, but um, there's probably a double meaning here. So if you have misplaced love, you don't have the love of God, it's probably both we don't have love for God the way we should, the way we're commanded to, and we're likely not experiencing God's love in our own lives. Page 708, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. So chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's a consistent message of God is to love one another. This is one of those beautiful, uh, many one another passages throughout the Bible of how we should love one another, care for one another. A little bit further on there, chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. He starts out there with a term of endearment, beloved, both because John loves his audience and because he knows uh, Christians have supremely been loved by God, and so he can confidently call them beloved. He says, let us love one another. Love is from God. Anyone who does not love has not been born of God. And then the profound, simple yet profound statement that God is love. Along with truth, Love is an important attribute of God himself, and he expects that to be reflected in the lives of his children. And this, this simple truth here is often misrepresented, uh, misinterpreted. A lot of people will say, oh, well, if God's love, then he's never going to punish anyone, right? No, but God is holy. We know he is perfectly holy, and so he must punish sin. Well, as we'll see here, God has revealed his, his love in a special way. 1 John 4, 20-21 Again, there on page 708, chapter 4, verses 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love is not optional for the Christian. Uh, love for God should produce love for others, especially for fellow Christians. 
Does this love sound impossible to you? How can I do this love? I mean, if you're honest, like as I was studying for the sermon, I felt like, wow, my love can be so cold in so many ways. And I fail to love God and love others so many ways throughout my life. Is it impossible? How in the world do we, is this just something that through sheer willpower we can produce this love in our lives? No. There, there's a particular truth that should create this love in our own hearts. And that truth is the gospel. Look at John, uh, 1 John 4, 9 through 11. A beautiful passage. I can't wait to preach on this specifically. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. You, know what, you want to know what God's love is like, what it means when God says God is love? This is, this is how you understand that, that simple phrase, God is love. In this, is the love of God, in this the love of God was manifested, or made manifest among us. It was revealed that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Propitiation, that's a fancy word for saying Jesus absorbed. He took the wrath of God, the just anger that God has against sinfulness, and he took it for us. This way God can maintain his holiness and his justice and yet show love to us through Jesus. This is how God shows love. Now, we can't define God's love any way we want. There's a famous false teacher out there named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love's Win Love Wins, and he loves to argue this point that, hey, God is love, so you don't have to worry about sin. God would never punish sin. It doesn't matter what you believe. It's all going to work out in the end. Well, friends, that's not the truth, and um, I'm not loving you if I let you believe that that is the truth. Friends, we don't get to define what the love of God means. We have to accept what he says. And this passage clearly says the way God has shown love to us is to provide Jesus to bear our sin so God can show love to unworthy sinners. Ever wonder if God loves you? Well, the Bible says Jesus died for sinners. Are you a sinner? Have you turned from your sins, repented, and believed in Jesus, had faith in Christ? Then you can have assurance that God loves you. Love is essential. Now, as an aside, um, I, we need to make a few things clear when we're talking about the, the importance of love in our life, especially love for others. Having love for others doesn't mean that you can't protect yourself and others from abuse. So if you're in an abusive situation, um, removing yourself from that situation does not mean you're, not having a lack of, uh, mean you're having a lack of love. It also doesn't mean you can't pursue justice. Um, so if there's been a wrong and injustice committed, uh, you, you can and should pr pursue justice and that doesn't mean you're not pursuing love as well. And third, um, it, it, uh, loving someone doesn't mean that you refuse to enable sin or enable harmful or unproductive lifestyle, right? Some of you have read the book, When Helping Hurts. You know that even in, a, in an attempt to try to help someone, you can actually cause more harm than good. So those of you who are parents know all about tough love sometimes, right? Sometimes you have to say no to your kids, and they don't see that as love. But because you do love them, you, you, you love them enough to say no sometimes. So that being said, love is an important fruit of the Spirit in the Christian life. It's an evidence of true Christianity. God expects it. And we even see in some of these passages the presence of all three of these elements together. Real quickly, chapter 3. You don't have to turn here if you don't want to. If you want to write it down, maybe look at it later. But I'm sure if, as I read through this, you'll be able to hear some of these elements. Chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. Chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, light, that we believe truth. In the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, love, just as he has commanded us. It's a command, light, it's obedience. Whoever keeps his commandments, light again, abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has sent, given us. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, that Wes read earlier, 
uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, everyone who believes truth, that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, love, loves whomever has been born of him, love again, love for the God and love for others. By this we know that we love the children of a God when we love God and obey his commandments. So loving God means loving the people of God and keeping his commandments. For this is the love of God, love again, that we keep his commandments, light. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What is faith? We learn in kids' ministry, right? Faith is believing what God has said. It's believing the truth. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? There's truth again, that Jesus is the Son of God. They're interrelated. These three elements... Sorry to keep belaboring the science uh, illustration more, but it's almost like it's a compound. You know, if you have truth, it's going to lead to, you know, light is going to uh, latch on there in a compound, and then love is also going to be a big part of that as well. You can't have one without the other. Um, but if you have to pick one that's the most important, it's probably truth. You must believe the truth in order to have real light and real love, to have confidence of your status before God. If you don't have truth, really it's kind of like monopoly. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Truth is primarily internal. You believe or you don't believe. Now, you might, outwardly, you might confess that you believe the truth, but it really is uh, an internal thing. And that should lead to external results, the light, your lifestyle, whether you walk in the light or whether you don't, primarily external. And then love is both. If you have a love for God and a love for others, it's going to start on the inside. And if it's genuine, there's going to be evidence of that love for God and love for others in your life. It's important we understand the, the importance of truth because some people, uh, well-meaning, might really focus on light. They might really focus on love, but they ignore truth. Um, some of my greatest friends in the army have been Mormons. Um, and I've had neighbors who are Jehovah's Witnesses and are great neighbors. You know, many of them are very moral people. They're very loving to their families and both to people around them. Um, and many times they put uh, the rest of us to shame by their acts of light and love. But they don't believe the truth. At least if they believe the teachings of their official church, they deny that Jesus is Christ. They deny that he is fully God, fully man, and that the only way to forgiveness is by faith in Christ, not by a series of good works or trying harder. Um, so it's important that you get truth. You get all three of these. You understand how they relate. You need all three to be present. All right, well, that's been a lot. We've talked about these three elements. We've looked through First uh, John at least three or four times here, looking at these elements I just have four really quick applications for you. Four applications. First one, are you a Christian? So we've been looking at tests for true Christianity. How would you do with this test? Now, maybe some of you have struggled with assurance or you are struggling with assurance. I've had family members that are struggling with assurance, have struggled with assurance, and it's a terrible way to live. I, I encourage you, you don't have to live that way. You can have total assurance, not because of your good works, not because you prayed the right words or you really, really, really meant them uh, or that you can even remember the first time that you believed in Jesus Christ. If you are repenting of your sins and, you're, and even though if you're struggling, you're still, you're not giving up, you're trying to live for God, you've repented and you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, you're not trusting in your good works, your church attendance or anything like that, you can have confidence that you are a Christian. For some of you, I hope this is a wake-up call. Maybe you just thought, hey, I go to church regularly, and I try not to do too many bad things, so, and I'm, I grew up in America, so of course I'm a Christian. I hope this is, these tests have woken you up, and that you will go to that truth test and believe that Jesus died for your sins and trust in him alone, and that you will see the evidence in your life through your, the lifestyle, walking in the light, and having a life of love. So that's the first application, so crucial, are you a Christian? If you have any questions about that, again, talk to me, talk to someone else here at the church, 
set up a Christianity Explained class. We want you to know for sure that you are a Christian. Second application, what kind of theologian are you? Notice I didn't ask you if you were a theologian. This doesn't mean you're like Andy, you have a seminary degree, or Kyle, you have a PhD, uh, or that you even know all those fancy theological words. All of us are theologians. Anytime you say something about God or you believe something about God, you're doing theology. And so either you're a good theologian or you're a bad theologian. Um, so how much, how, what are you doing to try to, yeah, some of you are thinking of Wizard of Oz, right? Are you a good witch or are you a bad witch? Are you a good theologian or a bad theologian? Um, what are you doing to be more grounded in the truth? Listen, we're all at different uh, uh, stages in our Christian walk. What are you actively doing to be more grounded in the, tr in the truth? Uh, in your personal Bible study, what are you doing to prepare for this weekly sermon where Kyle uh, spends the whole week uh, using all his resources to help mine the truth of God's word from a certain passage and share that with you all? Are you taking advantage of our small groups that we have here where we talk about the truth? A good portion of the time that we're in small group, we're talking about the truth. Are you supplementing that with good Christian books and, or podcasts or whatever? What are you doing to be, to be more grounded in the truth? It's an important aspect of our assurance, really, is when we know more about the truth, we know about, more about the gospel, um, that's what, how we're going to have more assurance, when we can have the confidence that we are trusting Christ. Third application, does your lifestyle match what you say you believe? Again, we can, a lot of us know about the, the errors of legalism and judgmentalism and, and being overly critical of other people. But at the end of the day, um, when we see something in, in each other's lives that are contradictory to, the, to the, the word of God and what he wants, one of the ways we can love that person is that, hey, I'm seeing this here. Do you, do you know what God says about that? Do you want to live in obedience to God? Um, it's important that our lifestyle match what God has said. And if we're living a lifestyle that maybe we're trying to say, oh, the Bible really doesn't say it's wrong or, oh, it's just who I am. But we're doing, actively doing what God is, what displeases God, we're living a lie. Um, does our lifestyle match what we say we believe? Back at, both at work, in the home, or when no one else sees us, are we living a lie or are we seeking to live for God? And finally, who or what do you love? Do you love God? Do you genuinely love God? Or are you kind of coming into church here because you feel like, oh, I don't want him to zap me with a lightning bolt or I want his blessing on my life, so I'm going to try to to go to church and be a good person so he'll give me what I want. Giant vending machine in the sky, right? Do you really love God? It's interesting because one of the most uh, religious people um, who ever lived, Martin Luther, uh, you know, before he was the great reformer, he was a Catholic monk who was trying to do everything he possibly could to have assurance that his sins were forgiven. He'd get up early in the morning, late at night. He'd do prayers. He'd do religious rituals. He'd be in confession for hours on end and really nothing interesting to confess but just could not get assurance that God had forgiven him of his sins. And he confessed that before he understood the gospel, he really hated God. He knew that God was holy and that he had fallen short. He just had no assurance that he could please God. And so really, he, was, he said, if I was honest, I would say I really hated God. And Martin Luther didn't really learn to love God until he understood the gospel. When he read the New Testament, he understood that he could be saved by faith alone, and that was it, and he could have that assurance of salvation. That's when he began to truly love God and to love others. Do you have that kind of love 
Have you understood the gospel? Has that produced a love for God in your life? And then, if you really love God, you're going to love the people around you, the fellow believers. doesn't mean we always get along, we have the same personalities, or that we don't have our, our personal conflicts. But if we're genuine believers, we're going to try as much as possible to live at peace with other people. We're going to try to seek what's best for other people. That's what love means, not always warm, fuzzy feelings. If you're a parent, I'm sure you know that, right? You know, sometimes you have warm, fuzzy feelings for your kids, and sometimes you love them, but oh boy, you know? Um, do you love, do you generally want what's best for your fellow believers and for anyone who's made in the image of God? Let's all sum it up. So we've talked about three elements. Being a Christian is fundamentally about believing certain truth. Truth about God, that he is holy. Truth about ourselves, that we're sinners. And truth about Jesus and what he did for us, the gospel. But if we genuinely believe the truth, it will change us from the inside out. And we'll see these tests of light and love. We'll see the change will show itself, even if imperfectly, in our lifestyle, light, and in who and what we love, the love test. Truth, light, and love. These are the basic elements of real, true Christianity. Are these elements present in your life? Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.